Will you turn with me to the scripture reading today and our gospel lesson, Matthew chapter 7, and I'll be reading from verses 7 to 12, also printed in your bulletins. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Let's get started. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Metro. Um, Just want to welcome you all again. Um, especially those of you who are new. And uh, I'm so thankful that you've decided to come and worship with us this morning. Um, I know it can be intimidating to do something new for the first time. And so um, we're just glad that you came out, and we'd love to connect with you uh, anytime after service. Um, And you know, I remember back in 2009, uh, when we as a church first met um, about the possibility of starting Metro. And Um, There was about 10 of us on the third floor of Donnie's house, and we pretty much knew nothing. Um, We had no idea what we were getting into. And um, you know how you know? It's because back then, we were called Untitled Presbyterian Church. We had no name. We didn't even know what what we were called. Uh, But we just, all that we knew was um, what it was going to be about, and uh, which was a community that was being shaped by the gospel, uh, to love God, to love others, um, you know, in the sacrificial, costly, and engaging way that Jesus did for us. That has been our mantra. That has been our hope. Uh, and that's been our joy, too. And so um, that's it. You know, everything else would flow from that. And so if you've been here, I hope that you've been a recipient of that. Uh, and I encourage you to share your story with others. Um, if you're new, I'm confident that your experience here will be renewing, engaging, and challenging. And we have such a warm, energetic, and vibrant community here. Um, It's different than most. And I love this church. I I love Metro. Um, I'm so grateful to see how God has grown it, how he's matured it. Um, And I'm humbled to stand before you today uh, as a product of of this community here. I hope that you'll trust it to shape you as well. Uh, Let's get into God's Word today. Uh, We've been slowly going through the book of Matthew, uh, specifically chapters 5 to 7, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's Jesus' most famous sermon. It covers the principles on how to live a life that is dedicated and pleasing to God. Or simply put, it's how to live a Christian life. Today we'll be looking at verses 7 to 12, and it focuses on our call to prayer, which ultimately points us to the core teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, which is to love thy neighbor as yourself. After all that, we're just called to simply love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Whether this is your first time in the church or if it's your 500th time, you probably have at least a general view of that religion equals rules or laws that you have to live by. And you would be right. If you look at even other religions such as Islam or Buddhism, um, which have a large set of rules, we see here in the Sermon on the Mount that the Bible does too. So along with every major city, right, uh, every county, every classroom, every home, they all have rules. And so rules have a purpose in life. They're put in place so that those who live by rules would live and operate according to a certain set of standards, values, and principles. So as a result, breaking these rules results in some type of punishment or judgment. Um, there has to be some type of accountability. Otherwise, the rules become meaningless. The Sermon on the Mount is full of rules. If you count them all up, there's over 30 of them throughout this, just this one text uh, that Jesus teaches. And that brings us here to verses 7 to 12. We're nearing the end of Jesus' sermon now. And in these verses, Jesus is simply saying, I've told you what you need to do. Here's how to do it. There are three points today. The myth of prayer, the reality of prayer, and the promise of prayer. The myth of prayer, what do we believe about prayer? The reality of prayer, what does Jesus say about prayer? And the promise of prayer, what gives power to our prayer? We have the myth, the reality, and the promise of prayer. First, the myth of prayer. Let's read verses 7 to 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. As we've seen so far, Jesus has a high standard for his followers. So how do you live it? Jesus says, here's how you do it. You pray. In verse 7, there are three imperatives or commands. Jesus says to ask, to seek, and to knock. Each of them followed by a promise. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And if you still weren't sure, if you're still like, oh, I don't really know about that, Jesus repeats it again in verse 8 to emphasize not only the importance of prayer, but to assure you that your prayers will be heard and answered. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. There's symmetrical repetition here to verse 7. And that kind of counts as a doublet, right? Which implies great emotional content. You see, he isn't just saying this as like some type of side comment. He doesn't just repeat it just for the sake of repeating it. He's pleading with and he's urging you to listen to this command because he loves you. He wants you to hear this. He wants you to really take hold of it. He's stressing how important this is for your life because he knows how difficult your life is. 
ask, seek, knock. There's a natural progression here from passive to aggressive. So let's say someone's trying to find an address, right? First, you ask for the address. Where is it? Next, you're out seeking to find it. And then you're knocking at the door, right? So there's a progression here from kind of just passive to aggressive. And so Jesus is talking about something of great importance here, and that's about access. By giving you this command, ask, seek, and knock, Jesus is saying that you have access because he, he follows it up with a promise. To who? The Father, who will answer you. People try to get access in many different ways. Uh, and so while every other religion says you have to work to get in, Christianity says all you have to do is ask. Scholars have tried to explain the practical differences of uh, those three commands, ask, seek, and knock. But ultimately, they say the same thing. Pray, pray, pray. So if we reread this verse, right? Pray and it will be given to you. Pray and you will find. Pray and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who prays receives. The one who prays finds. And to the one who prays, the door will be opened. In fact, when you look at the original language here, um, and the CSB, which is the Christian Standard Bible translation, I think it puts it best. Keep asking and you will receive. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be open to you. Or in other words, keep praying. Your prayer will be heard and answered. Jesus is telling us to be persistent and to persevere. He's saying, don't give up. Don't give up. Now, you might be thinking, I've been burned too many times by prayer. I've gotten my hopes up only to be let down. I've asked. I've sought. I've knocked. There's been no answer. In fact, it's as if God has done the exact opposite of what I've wanted. See, if we're truly honest with ourselves, most of us here in this room have probably lost our belief in prayer. We've gone through too much. We've been disappointed. We've come desperately only to leave even more hopeless. We look at our lives today. We look at our jobs, our health, our looks, our possessions, our families, our spouses, our singleness, our friendships, and we're incredibly dissatisfied. We're not happy. And so all of those perfect plans we had in mind for ourselves, that we worked so hard for, that we waited so long for, that would finally make us happy, right, hasn't turned out exactly how we wanted them to. And so, we're bitter. We're depressed, we're lonely, we're jealous and envious of those around us, feel neglected and abandoned. See, what we have is what we don't want, and what we want is what we don't have. And so, we've given up on prayer, or at least the idea of prayer. We've given up the hope that prayer brings. And so, as a result, we've given up on God. We've become angry with God. We've become silent with God. 
All throughout Scripture, we have examples of unanswered prayer, disappointed people. From fathers of the faith, you have Moses, Abraham, David, to prophets, Elijah, Job, Jonah, and even the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Each of them endured unanswered prayer that resulted in pain and suffering. These weren't just delayed answers to prayer. These were prayers of people whom God loved that were never granted. And so if the Bible was really trying to make a case for why believers should believe in God, wouldn't it make sense to only include stories where God answers? Why then include so many stories where God does not answer? There must be a reason. There's got to be a reason why they're, they're in there. I'm going to read from James uh, chapter 4, verse 2 to 3. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. These verses seem to contradict with what's here in Matthew. So which is it? Does God give when you ask? Or does he not give? What God is saying is that both are true. Think about this. If we got everything we ever asked for, we'd be in a lot of trouble. There would be things today that we we wouldn't want that we had asked for before. Pastor Tim Keller uh, up in uh, New York puts it this way regarding prayer. You either get what you ask or you get something better. There is no unanswered prayer. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. Man, that's great. I'm going I'm to say that one more time. You either get what you ask or you get something better. There is no unanswered prayer. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. So how we pray or don't pray is a reflection of our view of God. Who is God? You see, the myth of prayer is this. If God truly loves me, then he'll give me what I want. If God exists, then he'll make himself known by answering me. Or in other words, if God does not give me what I want, then he must not love me. If God does not answer me, then he must not exist. Whether you believe or don't believe in God, we all have a certain view of what God should be in our life if he exists. For many of us, our relational view of God is transactional. And what that means is, I come to God and God gives me things. God comes to me and I give him things. That's how we view God. If God doesn't give me what I want, then I'll take my business somewhere else. The core problem, you see, of why we struggle with prayer and ultimately belief in God is this. We believe deep inside our hearts that God answers to me. God answers to me. 
When we live according to this, we become extremely self-absorbed, extremely selfish. Rather than going to God because he's our father, we go to God just to get things. You see, church becomes something we do so that we stay on his good side. The good works that we do just become things we do just so that we can be, have credit with him. So we obey, and then one day we say, God, I'm going to cash it in. I need this thing. Give it to me because I've, I've been good. I've followed you. I've been a good person. So what do we do when he does not provide, right? After all the work and sacrifices we've made, after all the waiting, we turn to other gods. We turn to the world. You see, we ask, we seek, and knock at the door of our careers, our relationships, our friends, our spouses, our children, our material possessions, right? Our status, our power, our reputation, these things become elevated. They become God to us. We go searching for things that we think will satisfy us, looking constantly. We experience the thrill of getting our heart's desires because sometimes they do provide, right? We get what we want sometimes. But at what cost? At what cost do we we give in to these things. Jesus knows that we struggle to believe that God, our Father, wants what is best for us. He knows that. He knows we'll be tempted to run from him. And so he continues. And look at the love and care here in verse 9 to 10. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This brings us to our second point, which is the reality of prayer. In verses 9 to 10, Jesus is making his case as to why the Father is trustworthy. He's appealing to the, the, uh, the nature and the natural heart of the listener. And so in one fell swoop, in these verses, he calls on, and yet he calls out the listener at the same time. He's asking a couple of rhetorical questions here, right? And so he provides a baseline context by which the person who's listening will empathize with and understand, right? It's about the love of a parent for his or her child. So whether you're a parent or whether you're a child, you will understand what it means to feel that love, right? And so notice in each case, the child is asking for something that will truly be beneficial and good. Bread. He's asking for bread. That's good. Fish. That's also good, right? Both of these things are providing good sustenance for the child. And so if you actually reverse those options, the answer actually remains the same. And so if we kind of reread it, kind of switching some of these words, if your son asks for a stone, will you give him bread? Yes. Or if he asks for a snake, will you give him a fish? Yes. 
In both cases, the listener or the parent would choose what is best for the child, regardless of whatever the child asks. You see, only someone who is evil and wicked in their heart would give a stone to a child to eat or a snake to put a child in danger. None of us would sit here and say that that's what they would do. All of us would choose, yes, I would give my child bread. I would give my child fish, right? So we understand that inherently there's a goodness that we want to provide and love these children. And so in verse 11, Jesus makes his point. He starts pretty boldly. If you then, though you are evil, he's saying even the worst of you can give good gifts. You who are selfish, greedy, and wicked, even you. And so he continues, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is telling you that your Father in heaven, his Father, will give you good gifts. That as a parent is to his or her child, your Father in heaven is infinitely more trustworthy, infinitely more loving to provide what you need. You see, our Father is not just good, He's goodness. See, our Father is not just loving, He is love. He's not just a provider, He's providence, He's God. So what Jesus is saying is this, go to the Father. I know you face some suffering and difficulty. I know that it's hard to trust. I know that it seems like he's failed you, but he hasn't. He loves you. He's reassuring us. He's trying to convince us. So this is the reality of prayer. Because God loves you, he gives you what you need. Because God loves you, he gives you what you need. More and more parents today have decided to stop t telling their children no. It's, it's like a thing. And parents today are more concerned about being a friend rather than a parent. So we have kids today who, when they get to a certain age, you know, where they can no longer be protected by their parents, when they go out into the real world, they don't know how to deal with the real world. They don't know how to deal with disappointment. They don't know how to function when everything doesn't go according to plan. This kind of parenting, uh, while it can come off as very loving, uh, is actually quite the opposite. Um, but this kind of parent is often the kind that we want. One way I see this is when I watch my friend's kids uh, ask their parents for candy. I see it a lot. Uh, they're so afraid of asking their mom and their dad because they know that the answer is probably going to be no. But these kids are smart. They've learned. They go to their aunt and uncle instead because they'll never say no. In fact, this said aunt and uncle actually come bearing lots of candy, right? Friends, aren't we like these kids? We're afraid to go to God because we're afraid he'll say no to our deepest desires. We want to be satisfied right now 
So where do we go? We don't go to God because we want what we want, not what God wants. See, a truly loving parent will know when to say yes and when to say no. It's not all about saying no, right? Because they know exactly what their child needs. And so in the same way, our Heavenly Father knows you all the more. He created you. He knows exactly what you need when you need it. He also knows what you don't need and when to keep you safe, out of harm's way. And so once again, because God loves you, he gives you what you need. This is the reality. I know that for many of us sitting in this room, this is incredibly hard to believe. We've experienced some terribly evil things in life that shake us to the core. And so after such experiences, how do we rebuild the trust and confidence to pray again? How do we believe that God hears us and wants what's best for us? Here's how. We know that God will hear us when we call because on one fateful day, he didn't answer Jesus when he called. This is the promise of prayer. It's our third and last point. Let's go to verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. After all this talk about rules and commands, prayer and surrender, we finally get to verse 12, which will tie it up and give meaning to all of it. This verse, chapter, uh, verse 12, is also known as the golden rule because it's such a simple yet comprehensive summary of the principles of unselfishness and love found in Jesus' sermon here. This verse might sound familiar because there are similar sayings in other religions. If you go to Confucianism, it says, do not do to others what you, would, what you do not want them to do to you. Hinduism says, this is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. And Buddhism says, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. The key difference between these religions and Christianity is that these are stated negatively. What, we, what, what that means is that while they may sound similar, these sayings here are actually very passive. And what we find here in verse 12 is very active. The sayings do not do and hurt not others allow you to stay very passive. It requires no work. You can accomplish these by just sitting on your couch. Meanwhile, in verse 12, we see in everything do to others. Right? This is an active kind of doing. This is an active love. This command to love separates Christianity from every other religion. Yet, we're terrible at it, are we not? How do we get better at this? How do we get better at this call to love our neighbors as ourselves? Jesus has been telling us all along. In the Sermon on the Mount, he first lays out what the Christian life looks like. Then he tells us how to get it. 
by asking, seeking, and knocking for help, by praying and surrendering and trusting in the Lord. So Jesus lays out all of this, everything we've covered since the beginning of the year, for this one verse, to love others. Why do we pray? To love others. And to love others means that we first love God more than anything else because that's where we get the power to love others. You see, when we put, God, when we put loving God and others first, it transforms our prayers. It changes them. It gives us a new perspective. Rather than seeking our own advancement, we seek the advancement of God's kingdom and others around us. And yet it's so hard to do. Where do we get that power? We've already argued that there is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. Yet the struggle to believe in prayer can be so difficult, especially when we've lost and suffered so much. How can we really believe that God cares and understands when even our most well-intended prayers and pleas have gone unanswered? Let's read from Matthew 26, verse 36 to 39. This is right after Jesus' final meal, also known as the Last Supper. Verse 36, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and, two, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus went to the Father. He prayed this prayer three times. So what was Jesus doing? He was asking, he was seeking, he was knocking. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He was praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There are two things to look at here. First, Jesus, who's the one who taught the Sermon on the Mount, he lived it out perfectly. He lived it out fully. All those rules and commands, he was blameless. And second, God, the Father, who sent his one and only Son, knows the pain of not answering even his own Son. The Father of fathers who is all-powerful and all-good. And you see, on the cross, Jesus asks again. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But again, there was no answer. You see, this request is different from when he was in the garden. And it's the only time in the Bible that Jesus doesn't refer to God as Father. Why? It's because Jesus lost his access. The one person in the history of the world who lived a sinless, perfect, and holy life, who deserved to have his prayers answered, who deserved to be heard, who had a case, he experienced deafening silence. No answer. You see, Jesus didn't just not receive the gift. He got the curse. 
He knocked on the door of heaven, and there was no answer. And the penalty of sin that we deserved, hearing, get, hearing no answer, fell upon him. And the prize of righteousness that he deserved fell upon us. Jesus, God answers us. You see, instead of receiving the bread of life, Jesus received the stone that was ultimately rolled over his grave. Instead of receiving the sustenance of a fish, Jesus received the bite of a snake. And the one thing that he treasured most, above all, his deepest desire, his relationship with his father, was cut off from him. Why? Jesus bore the curse of sin so that we would have access to God. Jesus bore the punishment and the silence that we deserved so that God would, so that God would give us the gift of salvation. You see? So that we would be heard. And this is the beautiful part about the gospel. You see, when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son. He smiles with great love and favor. He is running to answer that door. We did nothing to deserve this. And that's why all it takes to receive is to ask, is to pray. Friends, this means that our deepest desires have been answered. Everything that you're looking for, it's been answered. Despite our sin, and the evil within, we are loved by an everlasting love. You see, all the approval and worth that we're looking for, that we're searching after, Jesus has won for us on the cross. You see, the more that we trust and believe this, the more that we make it real in our life, the less selfish our prayers and, and thus our lives will be. There's great freedom there. It also means that we can pray with great boldness, knowing that God hears us. Not because of our merit, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. You know, we didn't earn it, so we can't lose it. There's great power there. That should humble us, and give us an amazing boldness. You see, when this becomes real in our lives, as a whole, we as a community can be radically different because of the gospel. Instead of looking inwardly, we can genuinely sacrifice outwardly. Instead of looking to earthly fathers, we can look to our true father with great trust that he'll give us what we need. See, knowing that Jesus did unto others at great cost to himself, we can do unto others today at great cost to ourselves. That's hard. This is what makes the gospel powerful. And this is the promise of prayer. Let's face it, when we pray, we pray with selfish motives. Right? We aren't coming to God for God, but for ourselves. So in light of what Jesus has won for you, which is full access, full approval, full worth, full security, will you ask? 
Will you seek? Will you knock? Will you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done? That's a scary prayer. Will you seek the Father and not the things of the Father? You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus not only teaches us how to pray, he shows us why, to love him and love others. Will you do that this week? Will you surrender your selfish desires and your self-seeking agendas? What Jesus has won is so much greater and it can never be taken away. Do you believe that? Let's pray.